You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Big promotion's being announced today, and I think I know who's going to get it. The new president. Big surprise. And daily. What? I am engaged to your daughter. Daily here is engaged to my favorite daughter. What kind of a man has a favorite daughter? Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise, and at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon... Or go in cyberpunk mode, one with a, a very big film and then one with a very, very strange film. So join that sleaze. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for coming up on five years. There's like 110, yeah. 120 bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series where we talk about new release genre films. And uh, so if you haven't made the jump to that, patreon.com slash podcast. Speaking of which, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so we're going to give them their shout-outs here. We nice. had uh, Dawson Martin. Uh, we had Max Barbie. Uh, we had Napalm Meth. We had uh, Jared Cons. We had Daniel. Uh, we had Jindo, uh, Andy Summerall, Claire Brown, uh, Robin Verwedge, uh, Baylor Thornton, uh, Emma Chase, Thomas Flower, um, something something else, uh, Kestutis Zalpis. I am so sorry. But thanks so much uh, to them for signing up for an entire year of the show, which is something that you can do. We have an annual tier. You can get a whole year of the show for a little bit of a discounted rate. So thanks so much for doing that. We yeah. also had Noah Neal, Chris Gibbons, Connor Barkey, and Tobias Holden. So thanks so much to all of those folks. Hope you are enjoying those bonus episodes. We appreciate yeah. the support. Thank you. That's the one plug for the week. The other plug, as always, is uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I see the stats, I see you listening right now on both those platforms. Scroll down to the very bottom. Give us a good old rating and review down there. Helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners, which we, based on some of the reviews we've been getting, we have been noticing that happening. So give it a go. Um, and the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that uh, based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for our show, you can get that basically put on anything you can think of. And you freaks have thought of a lot of things. Uh, pens, <laughs> pillows, uh, hoodies, uh, posters, notebooks, anything you can think of. That's at the link in the description, as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, uh, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think uh, two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks would have heard from us and uh, over on the main feed, and we would have had a special guest, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin from the Not A Cast podcast on, to, uh, in honor of Heat 2 and Heat on 4K, have a little bit of man fever with us, and uh, we discussed getting high on the action <laughs> in the soulful, stylish world of undercover narco-trafficking in both the pilot episode of Miami Vice called Brothers Keeper, directed by Thomas Carter, as 
well as Michael Mann's impressionistic, hyper-digital uh, sort of remake, reimagining, readaptation from 2006. It was a big old monster episode because we hadn't gone big man boy. mode in a while, um, and it was a lot of fun going back and uh, you know addressing two very different eras, but of very you know obviously the same material. So if you haven't heard that episode, that was over on the main feed two weeks ago. Uh, go check it out. And then last week, for the bonus listeners, we took a little bit of a left turn, and uh, we wanted to go a little bit more uh, old-school exploitation mode a tiny bit. So we talked about deadly artistic frustration with a artist-as-serial-killer double feature of uh, John Brahms' kind of uh, underseen, tragic, delirious noir called Hangover Square from 1945, starring Laird Krager. Fantastic film, really, really um, under underseen, and has a insanely fiery, uh, very uh, subjective style to it, and a, a very tragic ending. So definitely, mm. if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's not on Criterion Channel anymore, but it is out there. And we paired that with none other than Roger Corman, who did his own sort of a morbid comic satire of a similar subject in a film called A Bucket of Blood from 1959, which was also a centerpiece for an actor you don't necessarily here talked about a lot as a leading man, uh, Dick Miller, who was uh, really fantastic in the film. And that film is just very, very funny and and, uh, disturbing. (laughs) Yeah, has its own sense of tragedy as well, um, regardless of how funny it can be. Absolutely. So if you haven't heard that episode, uh, that was over on the Patreon exclusively last week for all the bonus listeners. But moving on to this week, we have a very special guest joining us um, this week who I've been thinking about trying to get on for a while. He's a legendary Toronto film programmer, producer, and writer who's helped push genre cinema and underground and art outsider art at festivals such as Toronto After Dark and Fantastic Fest and, of course, the Toronto International Film Festival, which is coming up soon, as the head of the Midnight Madness section, which does all kinds of cult and genre and action and sci-fi and horror. Uh, But he's also done indie film series such as the Laser Blast Film Society with friend of the pod Justin DeClue over at Important Cinema Club who's been on before. And he is a co-producer on genre films himself, such as films that uh, I think, Jamie, you might have even seen, The Void and uh, Psycho Gorman. So that guest is Peter Koplowski. Peter, how are you doing? Pretty good. Busy times, getting ready for TIFF, Fantastic Fest, working on another movie. Um releasing two other films so it's a pretty full slate uh, these days yeah but doing everything well, that i want to be doing so feeling good absolutely thanks awesome. so much for making the time because i know that you've been crazy busy and trying to even find a time where you could talk for a couple hours was not the easiest thing i think <laughs> yeah yeah it uh this month in general has been just nuts for me yeah. Well, thanks so much for um, for joining us. Obviously, uh, yeah, you know, you. we've spoken a co- we've spoken a couple times at the monthly screenings that you've been doing where you just program all kinds of stuff that we've done on this show, like Hellraiser 2 on 35 or Targets on 35 or things that we've recently seen. Oh, and yeah. Midnight Madness has always been uh, very important to me since I started going to the fest in 20. 20- 13. I remember 2017 specifically. I think I did a double feature of Brawl and Cell Block 99 and Mom and Dad. And it was Damn, like awesome. an, ins- an insane, magical uh, experience. One of my favorite times at the festival. I had no idea what either of those movies were going into them. Um, but Peter, obviously, you are the genre guy. And <laughs> we uh, so when we invited you on, we kind of figured we kind of had some idea what you were going to give us. But you still gave us a double feature. I wasn't, you know, totally expecting. So what two films have you brought with you this week and why did you pair these together? Uh, I mean, the two films I brought is David Steinberg's The Wrong Guy from 1997, starring 
co-written by Dave Foley, uh, and uh, 1995's, and also a Midnight Madness alumni film, uh, Mute Witness from Anthony Waller. Uh, and really, I mean, I'll be honest, like, lately, it's it's funny, if you look at my letterbox right now, it looks like I've watched two movies in the last three months when <laughs> I've actually watched, like, 400 movies. I just can't log the stuff that I'm watching for <laughs> film festivals. Um, but, no, I was just kind of, I kind of, my brain was just so fried, and I was just tr- struggling to think about something that I had seen recently that I would be down to talk about, um, because I really didn't have time to rewatch something uh, mm-hmm. because my schedule's been so full on lately so uh, I I immediately went to Mute Witness because it was a film that I had watched recently while researching titles that I wanted to bring to the monthly Midnight Madness series at Lightbox so I'm definitely planning on bringing this movie on 35 at some point Holy. to the Lightbox that would be fantastic and, um, and then The Wrong Guy is a movie that I'm just always recommending to people because I think it's one of the most I think both these films are among the most underrated, uh, you know, they're just really underrated 90s movies that I feel like Mm -hmm. didn't get enough attention at the time. Mute Witness probably got a lot more attention than something like The Wrong Guy. But, you know, they've they've only recently shown up on Blu-ray. I think they're deserving more audiences. And if there's a thematic connection, they're both, you know, both protagonists are people who witness a crime. Uh, and And in sense, both movies, I think, are very... Uh, self-reflexive and self-conscious in terms of uh, how genre movies work and they are Mm -hmm. uh, very much um, there's a meta component to both of them Uh, one through the lens of parody and the other one through the lens of uh, pastiche so um, and and there's a distinction I think to be made there so I think I would start my double I was trying to think of what I would start with and I think I would I think it makes sense to you would start with the wrong guy because it's lighter and I think it leaves you feeling good in my in, in my opinion at least I think it leaves you feeling like yeah I'll watch another movie that was I had a great time <laughs> watching that and then mute witness is is a little gnarlier um, I also think that movie is 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 you know leaves you pretty high energy but yeah. uh, it just makes more sense to me to put the horror film on the uh, on the second half of the double bill Absolutely. Well, I say let's uh, let's do that and let's uh, let's jump into it here. Let's start off with uh, Peter's first choice here, the wrong guy. Dave Foley. I must live in hiding, never able to rest, never a moment's peace, starting at every noise. What's that? I'll say. David Anthony Higgins. Call the snipers to get in position. I can hear you. Sorry. Jennifer Tilly. Did I have one of my spells again? I'm guessing you did. And Calm Fiore. He's getting in the way. I'm going to get rid of him. In the story of a man on the run, the wrong guy. This doesn't look anything like me. No, no, it doesn't. It's me. All right. We are talking The Wrong Guy, the 1997 Canadian uh, black comedy thriller directed by one David Steinberg and starring and co-written by Dave Foley of Kids in the Hall fame and David Anthony Higgins and there there wasn't a whole lot of writing that you could actually you know kind of find about this film which I think speaks to Peter's point that it was super underrated but from what I understand yeah. the script was originally inspired by a sketch and it kind of does feel like an extended sketch in a lot of ways that Foley wrote during his days with Kids in the Hall which is the Canadian sketch comedy TV series that aired in the 80s and 90s so us being three Canadians I'm sure we're all familiar but maybe not everybody is mm-hmm. some I think at the time Americans tried to compare them to something like SNL but they were 
more akin to something like Monty Python, I yeah, guess, where definitely. they had sort of like a legitimate satirical ambition. And, you know, it was kind of less about doing a topical parody of the week. And it had more of that, uh, you know, they could have like a surreal and a meta and sort of a deadpan quality. Like in terms of sense of humor, I kind of think of them more in the realm of Norm MacDonald or like Stella or even The Simpsons yeah. uh, at times than I do something like SNL. Uh, I but mean, I, I think The Simpsons is apt because this film was also co-written by Jay Kogan, who is a veteran Simpsons writer. And mm. when I first try to sell people on this movie, I say, it's a live-action episode of The Simpsons. Imagine <laughs> a live-action episode of The Simpsons from the era of Last Exit to Springfield. Uh, like yeah. that, like it's it, it and it's it was Jay Kogan wrote that episode, which is like one of you know constantly voted one of the best Simpsons episodes. But it really feels like this could have been a feature length Simpsons movie, like, and you just supplant Homer and the Dave Foley role, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Peter, do you? I, I'm assuming that you were familiar with Kids in the Hall back in the day. Is there any sketches that he, that you just are always thinking about? Uh, I mean, crushing the crushing head sketch. Like, as, as a little kid, like you don't even necessarily understand the nuances of sketch comedy to find that funny, um, yeah. And to quote it on the schoolyard, but I actually didn't watch Kids in the Hall that much as a as a kid. Um, okay. I actually think it kind of was a little over my head, to be honest. Yeah, like, when uh, I was younger, same thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's it okay. Would, it I, would be I, like I, I am detecting weirdness. I am detecting strangeness, and, <laughs> and and I but I don't quite know what the joke is. Sometimes, like um, <laughs> it, I don't think it was really until until high school or even college that I you know was catching reruns of Kids in the Hall and, and actually finally it clicking for me. And this yeah. is a yeah, movie well, I didn't I didn't discover until my late twenties, um, uh, where a friend of mine just said, "Oh, it's, you know," was just quoting it all the time. And then finally had me watch it, and I was just blown away. I was like, how is this not a monster hit? Um, yeah, it's so consistently funny. It's well, kind it, of unreal. And it, it, it's, it's really good, as you mentioned, sort of genre parody and pastiche at times, which is funny because that was what I always found was my personal favorite kids in the hall stuff. Like there's one of one bit I remember from when I was a kid where there, one of them is an axe murderer and he's literally just like covered in blood. He's very clearly just come from out of a slasher film where he's killed like 10 teenagers and he's just like politely walking down the street, like asking if anybody will help him. And he's like, don't tell anybody, though, you know, chop, <laughs> chop, you know, like that, <laughs> that kind of deal. Um, so or or th there was another one too where they like write a, a horror novel and the guy sets up and he's like I'm gonna write crank out this Stephen King classic and it's literally just one page that says boo and everyone opens the book and they're immediately terrified by the boo in all caps and it becomes like a bestseller and everything so like that sort of genre-esque sense of humor was definitely the thing I was the most taken with with them and so when you you know told me about this film which I legitimately hadn't heard of which is insane to me now having seen the film and having a blast with the film but like that is absolutely what this is doing here with Steinberg who is also a veteran of shows like Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm and things of that nature and just having like that sort of Simpsons-esque sense of humor but throwing it into what is legitimately very good genre filmmaking at times like the, the yeah. premise here for anyone who hasn't seen it uh, it stars Dave Foley as this character Nelson Hibbert who is this sort of uh, you know high up middle manager who expects to become the new president of this company called Nagel Industries but his his boss who is a hard ass who he's you know trying to marry his daughter to get in uh, cahoots with him uh, he decides to give that promotion to another employee 
employee and who's married yeah. who's marrying uh the boss's favorite daughter <laughs> of course <laughs> great yeah great detail um, yeah <laughs> and when uh when nelson who's very angry about the situation he barges into his off his boss's office to confront him about this decision that he's made he finds him very viciously and very gruesomely murdered and immediately assumes that well this looks really really terrible that i'm angry at this guy the last thing i said to him was i will kill you and now his dead body is in his office and here i am and so he immediately he assumes himself without any other evidence of it that he is in a like hitchcock wrongly accused man on the run kind of paranoid suspense thriller including opening credits that sort of do look like saul bass opening credits in terms of the the stylization of them and everything like that and then it takes off from there but obviously the incredible premise and the bit that's baked into the entire thing is that there was actually the murder was captured on film and the police already know who the real killer is it was this you know hardcore assassin it was not this you know uh dave foley doing jerry lewis shtick uh character and that's in the first um, 15 minutes, too. So we get it, this, yeah, like, it's revealed to us instantly <laughs> where the uh, the cops are looking at the tape of Dave, who or um, I guess uh, Nelson. Um, and and before that, too, he grabs the knife out of the guy's neck because he's kind of in a panic. And he's he's like <laughs> looking at the body and making sure that he's maybe he's OK or something. I'm not sure. And every single yes. time he dives deeper into the, the troubles, I guess. He, he just does like a little scream every single time. Like he grabs the knife, does a scream, takes it out, does a scream, gets blood on his uh, suit, does a scream. And it's it's incredibly. He's literally making himself look as guilty as possible. <laughs> but in like this, like gruesome update on like a silent era gag where it's like very slapstick, like he's pulling the knife out and blood starts going everywhere. He's wiping it on himself. Uh, my favorite detail is when he tries to put it back in. But yes. he's like, do I have do I have to put like a do I make a new wound to put it back yeah. in? Yeah, 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 or yeah. How much pressure do I apply on it? Yeah, and then and then yeah, it cut. It cuts. You know, after after this fifteen minute escape sequence, which is which is uh, you know edited in parallel to the actual assassin escaping, played by the great Comb Fior, who I think is delivering one of the great straight man performances of the nineties. Like he's so oh, yeah. he's so good in this movie as just being this like confident badass. Uh, which again, like his character just feels like a very Simpsons character too. Um, mm-hmm. But like he escapes perfectly, has all these disguises. He has a ridiculous amount of disguises that he he gets into when escaping. But then we cut to the the camera feed, and they're just like, "Oh, it's clearly Comfior. Comfior is the the killer. We're gonna go look for that guy." Yeah, um, I love how it like it always pulls the rug out from under you. You like you you look at the scene where he discovers his boss, and he's you know grabbing everything and putting his fingerprints everywhere, and you just assume that this is what's gonna lead him into trouble. And then the moment after, they just what like wipe that away and say, no, they're not going to look at him. Uh, They're going to focus on the assassin. And the way they start the scene is actually showing uh, Nelson doing all of this stupid stuff and they're watching it. And so your your brain kind of tells you, oh, okay, they're going to look at the security footage and then they're going to go after him. But then it instantly... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> lets you know that the assassin was there too and then they just start kind of like making fun of him calling him a girl because he's screaming and all of this kind of stuff which which does lead uh which does go throughout the the film in this kind of funny little yeah dumb everyone joke. Keep, everyone, keep, everyone keeps mistaking yeah dave foley for a woman <laughs> throughout the film um and they yeah they uh the other sort of so the, the, the tension ultimately becomes you know dave is on the run nelson hibbert is on the run no one is after him but because he is 
he is making tracks for Mexico in the same direction that the assassin is going. The assassin thinks that Dave Foley must be some kind of super cop that is hot <laughs> on his trail. Yes. And so that, bec- that becomes kind of the dramatic tension of the film, at least for the next half hour. That is definitely the yeah. most like Simpsons-esque element where you have, you do have... Like a triple like, misunderstanding. Like, like Comfiore, <laughs> who's, you know, like a legend of 90s, like face off the insider. And, you know, he's he's doing like a performance that almost feels like something like Lance Henriksen would do. Like he's <laughs> yeah. a very, very tough guy and very like he's, he's from a completely different movie. He actually is the stone cold faced assassin from the serious thriller version of this premise. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And he just, he, he literally due to like a hilarious, like sequence of slapstick, absurd uh, circumstances. He genuinely thinks that this absolute moron, is like his equal in a cat and mouse thriller, which just leads to obviously some incredible, you know, like genre bending sequences, like an entire like John Woo esque action sequence <laughs> oh at a God. motel that takes place where you literally get comb like doing a like wired flip on top of a squad car while dual wielding in dressed full slow priest, motion and everything like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Dressed as a priest. <laughs> I mean, that goes to, so, you know, it goes to what you were saying earlier with the kids in the hall. I think one of the things that did stand out about their sketch comedy was that, like Monty Python, there was a real attention to the aesthetics of the sketch. It's not just like this proscenium that we're going to, you know, watch a sort of sketch take place on. There, there's a grit to it. There's a, there's an attention to the production design and to the aesthetics of, of genre films and their various style. Um, and sensibilities and iconography. And this film just nails that uh, yeah, all the way um, through. Like one of my favorite details is when Nelson constantly, no matter what he's doing, it's usually when he's talking to a woman, uh, he starts to get into this very like lyrical and mysterious way of talking, <laughs> kind of like he's narrating his own, you know, fugitive <laughs> run. And, um, and it's always just like eye rolly and, and cheesy. And he always gets cuts up, get, gets cut off. Um, and never gets to finish how like, it. How like that mangy Tom am I? Never, <laughs> n- never knowing the moment's peace. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or or like yeah, like when when he's like trying to call the uh, the boss's daughter to let yeah, her know that's that. The, you know, yeah, that's oh that's yeah, the yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like uh, you know, just so you know, I did not kill your father, and I am headed to Mexico until I can prove my innocence. I'm a fugitive from the law. No rest or peace, and startling at, at every noise. You know, like he 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 he's immediately like the desire to want to be in an exciting genre film is yeah. part baked into this character. Whereas you know, if he just like talks to anyone in the office after the fact, they'd be like, no, dude, no one thinks you did it. Like, you know, like you're, you're an idiot for everything that you did with, you know, with the body, but you know, like you have been completely cleared by the video, but yeah, just the desire to want to lean into, you know, the actual fugitive on the run thriller that he's in. And then to obviously, you know, replicate it so well in the filmmaking um, Mm -hmm. is, you know, it, it definitely makes this film consistently engaging. Yes, and what I also think is is also funny is that I think the movie wisely knows when they're kind of exhausting that premise, and then yeah. they switch to another genre parody, uh, which is the which is the like small town like Frank Capra uh, <laughs> film <laughs> film section of the film, which uh, with Joe Flaherty as a put upon bank owner uh, <laughs> that yes. I, with 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 his daughter Jennifer Tilly that I think is so funny like that whole stretch 
uh, which we can get. I don't know if we want to jump ahead to that part or, or continue to talk about some of the gags that precede it because there's a whole great sequence in a hospital. One of the, yeah, I we think, can. Yeah, we can, we can. We can. We can do both. One. One of. The, I'll, I'll. I'll just jump to the hospital gag first, maybe because it precedes the the following stuff. But I think when this, what makes this movie kind of a secret handshake movie among comedy film fans is that anyone who's seen it will always want to quote um, the Usual Suspects. Uh, <laughs> parody that occurs when uh, after eating a, 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 a cans of a hundred tainted hams in, a, in the back of a train. <laughs> in the back of a train, <laughs> which also has like this Buster Keaton like physical gag where he tries to like dive onto the moving train and he dives so like well that he flies out the other side of the train. Yeah, that, and that is that to me is like it's both a Buster Keaton gag, but also a vintage Simpsons gag. Like I can yeah. like Homer when he jumps out of the car and then rolls back into the car. Uh, yeah. In that episode. Where, <laughs> <laughs> like um, that, that is such a great gag. But then, yeah, he, he does manage to get onto the train. He, uh, there's a bunch stops. of, yeah, when it stops and there's a bunch of tainted hams. Oh, there's a bunch of hams and he eats them and they're apparently all tainted. And so he gets, he gets found near dead and taken to a nearby hospital where when he wakes up, they ask him for his name and looking around the room, uh, <laughs> he, he says, Joan, uh, Jones, cause he sees it on a medical document on the other side of the room. And then he then sees a box that says Smith on it, but it also says Smith's anima bags. And he then <laughs> And he then says, my name is Anima Bags Jones, of which the doctor immediately is like, no, you're lying to me. And when he tries again, he just uses the doctor's name as his own name. So that, that is a classic, how, uh, classic straight sequence. she plays it. Like, she's just so tired of his shit right away. Like, just, no, you're lying. That's my name. Yeah, you know, you're simply lying to me. Yeah, this, just the straight delivery of it is, is absolutely hilarious. Um, and I like that most of the time it shows that he's not being incredibly smooth. Uh, whenever he's doing something to like hide from somebody or whatever. But there's one sequence when he gets out into the hallway where he sees this guy slowly walking <laughs> with an IV. And it's like the one time he actually puts on a performance that's kind of convincing, but it's for <laughs> nobody because nobody's after him. <laughs> yeah. and so it's, it's just like these layers that keep happening. It's so funny. And then they do another rug pull right after that where he's making all of this noise trying to steal this old guy's pants and shirt and whatever. <laughs> and he's just like rummaging through hangers and he keeps looking at him as if he's going to wake up. And then he just never does. So all of it, yeah. it's just, I love the, the setup of it's your full expectation. on screen minute of him, like fumbling hangers and belts and pocket change. <laughs> yeah. And then nothing, he just gets out the door and it's totally okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's all to steal the outfit of this old man, which is ultimately makes him look like a 1930s paper boy. And so he's just like, wait, this actually doesn't work. So he needs to go steal like a different set of clothes anyway. Like it's very like every single time you think you kind of have an idea of the movie that you're in with this. They always just find a way to, you know, do a quick aside and derail itself and continue in a different direction, which is definitely like one of the more impressive parts of this film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, Nelson's character, too, is very funny because he has this sense of like. A, a, a strange confidence to him, but he also <laughs> is completely like uh, like in the beginning, he, he is showing all of his insecurities. He's coming into the into the building and he's talking to every single person just going like big day, huh? It's a big day promotion day. And no one seems to care or even know who he is, really. Um, and he's still asking them, like, uh, do you think I'll get the promotion? That kind of stuff. But he's doing it with this it's like half confident and half insecurity. And he kind of balances that 
the entire run through, which is also very funny about his character. Yeah, he definitely has a very feeble Jerry Lewis, like goofball kind of energy to him, especially when he's matched up against some of the more serious characters, which was the stuff that <laughs> reminded me most of of Lewis humor, where it was very much like the other characters are in a very different film and he's just an absolute moron who derails whatever movie that they're in by <laughs> not understanding where he is. And I love that his job, too, is he's the vice president of requisitions and non-human resources. Like, that's why nobody <laughs> knows who he is. He's literally been given like just like a a nothing job and it has some of that sort of uh middle manager sort of office slackerdom slash rage that was like all the all like every every movie in the 90s was practically yeah. about that like i did think a little bit about like falling down or office space in terms of where this starts but what's yeah. amazing is how well it does rework itself into the 90s you know like action and thriller and you know various genre pastiches that it's doing because I agree with uh, Peter the my favorite element was when it finally was like we have kind of exhausted the on the run you know elements of what we're doing here like we're at the hospital he's doing some of the fugitive stuff uh they do do have a, a very funny kind of like subplot about um it, I think it's David Anthony Higgins who's playing yeah, the detective the who's yeah, trying, yeah yeah and he's he's trying to take down the actual killer but he keeps accidentally running into because everyone because Nelson thinks he's guilty and is very clearly acting super guilty on his runaway journey. <laughs> Everyone keeps calling it in, them in being like, yeah, we've got the guy. And every time they show up they you know, they show up and they find, you know, Nelson, who is not the guy that they're looking for, but being tailed by the actual killer who thinks once again that he's being traced. So there's great scenes so of like pops up. Yeah. Know, like, I think about that club tracking shot with uh, David Anthony Higgins as, like, the schlubby cop acting like he's in a neo-noir. Like, you have, like, the straight up, you know, like, the neon lighting, the tracking shots. He's interrogating strippers. But the amount, the interrogation is, have you seen this man? And she's like, no. And he's like, all right. That's that. No, that's the end of our journey. He's also just using his police expense budget to then stay at the strip club for a bit longer and just enjoy it. Like every everything <laughs> going to music. I mean, he's a real Chief Wiggum character as well. Yes. He's just like he's he's kind of like no interest in actually being a police officer. He, doesn't he just do wants anything. to spend their money. <laughs> yeah, like the one time I think he's talking to the the stripper or whatever, and then he turns to his partner and he's like, "My instincts tell me we might get a lead if we watch these girls dance." <laughs> um, and he does things throughout that the entire runtime where he's not really doing cop work. Like he'll tell them what to do very briefly, but then immediately following some instructions to like get an escort or buy him tickets to a Broadway show or of just Moby, Moby Dick, the musical. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is also the credits music. It's hilarious. Yeah, They wrote the whole song. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's commitment the to the bit. of a tale. <laughs> <laughs> and it's told by Ishmael. That's what a great... <laughs> What a great line. And like he has moments, too, where he's completely um, I mean, he's he's pretty much lazy throughout. But there's this one part where and it's played so nonchalantly um, where he's just like, well, we're not going to find him. Let's just give up. And then his partner is like, actually, we found this new lead. And he's like, we got a right, lead. Well, let's yeah. Take it. <laughs> you know? Like he's just so inactive throughout the entire yeah. runtime. It's very funny. I like I like the, the repeated joke, too, where he's like, hey, it can't be our guy. Our guy knows how to pull himself up an air duct. <laughs> like, yeah. like, yeah, he's yeah, so well, impressed it, by yeah, that. And, he's and, like, and, yeah, that's when he sees they were like, yeah, this guy did like a John Woo flip on top of the squad car. And they were like, that's our guy. Have, yeah. you, seen, have, you, have, have you seen what he can do with his body? He can pull himself up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I also love how the cops in this are like they're completely useless, but they're also shown as uh, besides the lead cop, uh, like innocent a lot of the time. Like, for instance, when he's hiding in the dumpster and then they just show up and start like doing a quartet of cops. The bare naked uh, ladies. Yes, the bare naked ladies. Yeah. Which is hilarious. That's great. Um, they sing Gangster Girl. And then uh. an, another <laughs> funny one is when um, it's it, and an, another thing that's funny about it, too, is that this is when the the assassin kind of gets wrapped up in all of uh, Nelson's stupidity to the point where he fully is believing that he's a special agent and, you know, that that super um, secret G man, super cop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he needs to escape the cops at a certain point, too. And there's this great gag where a cop pulls up as the assassin's questioning somebody. And um, the sirens are on and he just gets out and he's just like, this damn siren just keeps coming on again. I can't do anything about it. Um, and he runs away. And it's just like I, I, I find it so funny that the cops are, are useless, but they're shown as like these completely dumb, almost innocent bystanders of the whole thing it's just it's such a funny way to look at it well there's a, there's a really great bit with the assassin too where he is obviously uh he's dressed up because one of my favorite bits is just how many disguises he wears he definitely just is yeah. in the business because he loves wearing disguises when he's doing his escape originally after the murder he goes up into the air duct and then he pretends to be like a, a water cooler installer yeah, guy the Gilligan, and the gulligan man there <laughs> Yeah, he, he he literally changes outfits for no reason, like three or four times. And he does like four different escapes, like he's in a heist film or something. And then at a certain point, he gets into the doctor's gear and he thinks that he's got Nelson because, you know, and he, he this time he's like, he's I'm approaching with a knife. He's about to stab him in the back. <laughs> exactly. And the cops walk in and they say, look, we, we got an injured cop and we know we, we need you, doctor. And obviously he's not a real doctor, but he has to lean into the bit. So straight up, they just cut to a scene of him performing surgery and not saving the guy <laughs> and just being like, you tried your best, Doc. And he's like, he's real shook up about what he just did. And meanwhile, all they've done is like delay his pursuit of Nelson for like five or ten minutes. So every time you yeah. think the movie has written itself into a corner, it always finds like a really silly gag to make its way out of that, which I think is when the movie transitions over into the It's a Wonderful Life stuff, which I will say was like the most surprising section yeah. of the film. Part Partially yeah. because it's actually sustained for quite a large yeah. amount of the film. It's and not like it just is, a, a standoff sketch. It, it really becomes its own plot. And I also think it actually becomes a pretty successful romantic comedy. Like, I think yeah. Jennifer Tilly yeah. and uh, she's plays awesome. the, the young woman uh, that that uh, brings Dave Foley's character into, uh, into this small town. Um, where he spends some time. Like, they're a great couple. Like, they're one of my favorite 90s couples. <laughs> Yeah, they're they're very funny. And I mean, like Tilly has that uh, very um, like cute presence to her. But then when you add on the narcolepsy of her like falling asleep <laughs> randomly, it's just yeah. it's so funny. And it 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 just got me every single time they do it. in the it's a in great the physical ways. performance. And, and I feel like the narcolepsy joke was like a like a kind of a, a tired joke in the 90s. Like there's a lot of comedies that did the narcolepsy joke. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think her performance really sells it the way she just collapses into, into Nelson's arms repeatedly. Well, and, and, and it's always first. like hugely coincidental moments. Like when she's opening a can of SpaghettiOs, <laughs> like, for no, like, yeah. like just like, girl, don't, don't be doing that. <laughs> also, yeah, so this, bring, this brings everywhere. us to the sequence where basically Nelson shows up in the, she, he gets picked up on the side of the road by, uh, he hitchhikes with Jennifer Tilly. Uh, ends up yeah, staying and, and a conspiracy theorist. Oh, who was dude, hilarious. before that, that's a great small scene. <laughs> 
where, yeah. Where, yeah, he first gets picked up by a conspiracy theorist. I think it's um, Enrico um, Colatoni who plays the creepy guy. Creepy uh, guy, yeah. Is, is his name in the credits. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, he's a JFK killer conspiracy theorist who who practices the no bullet theory that JFK's head just did that, which I think is what such a, a line, <laughs> such a good joke. <laughs> um, oh man, yeah, he is one yeah, of yeah, the funniest. He lines. tells him that Cuban assassins and man-made viruses are after him next, and he needs to get a tea bag and wax paper because that yep. is the ultimate weapon uh, yep. when you're in a dire situation like the situation he's in. Chekhov's Chekhov's wax paper and tea bag. It, it comes yeah, back up. He has like yeah. the uh, the the Tyler Durden line or whatever, where he's just like, "You can find many weapons with household items" or something like that. <laughs> yeah. He also has one of my favorite lines in the movie, just mostly the way he uh, delivers it, where he right before he kicks him out, he's just like, "Tell your friend." at the post office you can suck my ass <laughs> just kicks him out of the moving car oh man his is a short-lived moment but he's a very memorable character yeah but then, sure. but then tilly picks him up and she is just this cute rural girl who basically lives in the house from like bridges of madison county but also is like the same you know, she she is on his level as a character in yeah. terms of, you know, like she, you know, she's a little kind of naive and, you know, maybe doesn't see everything. But she's also clearly smarter than him, yes. Yes. <laughs> which is like one of the best bits. Like we found the one person who's like sort of on the same level as him, but also, you know, she even has to correct him all the time. But <laughs> but she gets to do some really funny physical gags like when, you know, she gets into one of her dizzy spells and she crashes the car. And I love when they roll up to the house, which is basically on like a Terrence Malick field farm. Yeah. She, they go to the white picket fence and clearly she's like run into it like 50 times over, <laughs> you know, over yeah, the history and, of living there. It's just constantly broken. And she, he injures his head in the car accident and she, at one point, she tries to dress his wound and sprays just disinfectant straight into his eyeball and then tries to rub it with, like, a dirty, like, hand towel. And she's like, oh, no, I'm just making things worse, aren't I? And I love that even he he wants to, like, comfort her a little bit. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, it's my eyes. They're just too sensitive to chemicals and, dirty and towels. filthy towels. Yeah. <laughs> But that that this comes to a really great part too, where where he asks for some ice and she says they can't afford any ice, and, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and starts to cry and it becomes the and now we've entered the melodrama phase of the movie, and uh, I just love how Nelson's care Nelson is so aloof in this moment where he's like, ah, oh, it seems like you got a lot of problems in your hand. Well, I'll be going. <laughs> and she's just given him like, you know, if we only had someone, we'd give them a place to stay, give them a job. And he's like, ah, I'm just gonna, just gonna head out. And, and then she has to kind of walk him to the concept of like, oh, maybe you could stay and this could be a place where you could hide out. Yeah, I love um, that he tries to pull off the like leading man heart throb kind of thing too, where he's just like, uh, he's like, I'm trouble. I'm nothing but heartache. <laughs> and he just like, he can't open the door. It, it, he just, the undermining of his character constantly made me laugh every single fucking time that he tried to be really smooth or the, the, uh, the conventional leading man. Yes. Uh, thank you for your graciousness and your warmth and your hospitality. These were the happiest four hours of my life. <laughs> and I will never forget them. And he was just trying to like use standard glue to put the fence back together, which just <laughs> fell like like he Dominoes. literally spent four hours 
doing a shitty handyman job, which is very funny. And he's using yeah. like school grade glue for it too. Yeah. <laughs> which is hilarious. I also love like that we've been talking about just how many jokes there are. It truly is oh, every so single scene they have a funny gag. Cause even when they show the house after the dad comes home and sees the fence and all of that, and they go in and they just have like an establishing shot of nighttime in the house, they still have one of the picket fence parts fall off right before they cut to the dinner table. Um, yeah. And so they just There's never an impressive amount of like gags per minute in this film. I yeah. Thought. yeah. Yeah. I was writing things down constantly. Like I just found every minute had at least a few gags that I was laughing at. It, it was one of the most consistently funny comedies that I've seen in a long time. Yeah. And then and, uh, so Joe Flaherty plays Tilly's uh, father and is the owner of a bank. And I kind of alluded to that. There's this whole like, uh, you know, it's a wonderful life uh, kind of situation where this the, the the gag the central gag about this small town plot is that the town's banks are being run out by <laughs> greedy farmers <laughs> yes. and uh, there's this guy farmer brown who i think is one of the best characters in the film um who is just calling up shopping malls and going like i'm going to ra- i'm going to raise your your shopping mall and put up a cat, a paddy field. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like all of those lines Pure and the evil. way that the actors lean into them, but like the way that it's shot, it's like the actual, it is really meant to be a melodramatic moment and the characters yes. play it seriously, yeah. Yeah. but it is just straight up. Like I'm just a simple country banker who can't make <laughs> ends meet against these low interest rates and federal laws and wealthy farmers who are trying to shut me down. And then when the farmers show up, they're like, it sure would be nice to tear this old bank down and plant me a fresh crop of corn. <laughs> yeah, my, I think my favorite No, fa- back one to the broccoli fields, Jedediah. Yeah, yeah, back to the broccoli fields, Jedediah. <laughs> That's one of the best lines in the movie. Or also Joe, Joe Flaherty complaining about uh, all the, um, the, the the progress that has occurred in this town. Like, they, they have a new chair, and he just can't get used to the chair. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that guy. <laughs> Um, but we're now approaching the climax because eventually Comfur shows up, the cops show up, yeah. and Comfur actually is able to kidnap uh, both uh, Nelson Hibbert and Lynn, the Jennifer Tilly character. Um, and Comfur, as you guys mentioned earlier, like he's convinced at this point that Dave Foley has to be a super spy. Like that, there's no way that Foley could be ha- be so consistently on his case if he wasn't some kind of yeah. super cop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah, we this, also this, know at this point too that um, the the person who hired the assassin was actually yes. the employee that got the promotion. Yes, yeah. Ken Ken Daly, and and I love when he sees him and he's just like, "Hey, I work with that guy. He's my friend. He's gonna get us out of this situation." <laughs> well, that's and meanwhile, like the Jennifer Tilly line too is when yeah. is when he then finally puts it together that Ken Daly is is behind everything. <laughs> He's like, hang on a second. I think you're behind all of this. And then Jennifer Dilly says, Nelson, you solved the mystery. Which is <laughs> yeah, he literally just grabs her and tries like walking away, being like, that's the end of this story. We figured it out. And like the assassin is still there pointing a gun at them, being like, what is, what is going on? I love yeah, how another low key. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no problem. I was just I love how convinced he is that Daly's going to help him throughout so much. <laughs> like even when he says the I think at one point he says, I'm going to kill you, too, just straight up. And he's like, no, you're going to save me. And then hugs him. <laughs> <laughs> like he just cannot believe that his co-partner his co-partner or, or business partner would do this this thing um and he's just and it really builds into his 
naive and stupidity rather than him just, you know, feeling good about people. <laughs> He's just a total idiot. But um, I love the commitment to it. It's so funny. I also love yeah. uh, before this, um, before this part where uh, him and Tilly are going to like go on the run together and live a new life or whatever. He has to call his his fiance and tell her about uh, Tilly. And he starts getting into these like extremely loving details about Tilly's character, which I just found it's like, this is probably not the thing you want to leave on your fiance's voicemail. But what I do find funny too, is that you never see this woman, this fiance. Mm -hmm. So it's almost, it comes off eventually as if she doesn't even give a fuck, which is also very <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah. It, it, it just implies it. It never shows it, but just these constant phone calls he's giving to her as he's like telling her he's on the run and then going to go leave with another woman. He gets no feedback whatsoever. And it's just, it's very funny to me. Yeah, and I, I love how much of this finale is dictated by how just annoying he is to the assassin. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is the majority, like, like this is just, he's kidnapped these two people, and, you know, he's being like, okay, this if this guy's not the super cop, then whatever, they're my hostages, and I'm going to use them to escape this, you know, altercation with the cops, and I'm going to get away, but fully keeps just undermining him and annoying him <laughs> in, like, these ways where he's just like, you know, he, he's doing the scene where he's got both of them at gunpoint, and he's taking them into this giant, like, mini-golf Finale yeah, they're, they're, that's they, they're going into inside a a Statue of Liberty uh, like miniature on a or bigature on a on a <laughs> mini golf course. That's like the secret hideout where there's a apparently an underground path to Mexico that they can take. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, but but he's he's doing the thing where he's walking these characters in public and he's like, you know, you don't say anything, don't try to run, or I'm gonna kill you. And Dave Foley just like smirks at him. He's like, what about signaling people? And he's like, yes, I will kill you for signaling. And he's like, ah, but you wouldn't have said anything about signaling if I didn't. And then he just, I mean, just, I think he, he, he that's, a, I, that's, I might be the part where he punches Dave Foley out and begins to carry an unconscious Dave Foley. But then at yes. a moment, Dave Foley says something and he's like, wait, you're awake. And he's like, yes, for a while now. And he's like, I've been carrying you. I thought you wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. The, but, the I mean, that's the thing about this so movie. Good. You can really just go through. And just list gags like yeah. that. I mean, you yeah. could dedicate a whole podcast to that, like of just listing great gags. There's so many zingers. The whole hostage negotiation standoff with the cops. Oh, it's great. You end up showing up. The cops um, stealing an old Foley. man's scooter and cotton candy <laughs> to get to the scene. And he just pulls up. Yeah. Everyone else has their guns like drawn, ready to go against this huge assassin that's been killing people and everything. And he just pulls up on the scooter with cotton candy, ready to ready to, to yeah, negotiate. With a, with a megaphone that he keeps using at the wrong time. So every time he tries to whisper <laughs> whisper something to the other cop, like get the snipers in position, he he says it into the megaphone. And Colin is like, I can hear you. And he and apologizes uh, <laughs> so many times to him too. Like he's like he's yeah. like uh, one at one point, one of the gunmen actually just shoots the assassin right in the <laughs> yeah, chest and he's like by, sorry by one of our gunmen got a little overzealous <laughs> <laughs> we don't want anyone to get hurt and cold fear is like i'm already hurt uh, <laughs> they're just like, <laughs> portrayed as just completely incompetent and it's it's absolutely so 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 funny yeah, well, and, and I straight up, uh, when when he's doing the negotiation with the cops, with the hostages mm -hmm. up there, and he figures out that he's like, hey, I've got a super cop up here. I'm going to kill him. And they're like, do you have a third hostage? <laughs> they're like, very clearly, you're just holding here. two idiots. Like, we don't understand what's happening here. And then he's like, okay, there has to be a way to help everyone out of this, you know? And the cop goes give yourself up and he's like how does that help me and i love that he immediately goes back to david anthony higgins who kills the delivery he's just yeah. like 
I don't know. And then he literally <laughs> get, the in position. Get, get, get the snipers ready. He's like, hey, I can hear you saying get the snipers ready. Yeah. And then yeah. or, so, or when uh, Dave Foley's like, and get a chopper. And then uh, yeah. Phil like, get, yes. yeah, get a chopper. Wait, why, why do we want a chopper? And then he's like, the chopper's been ordered. No, send the chopper back. We can't send it back. It's already on its way. <laughs> yeah. Let go of one of the hostages and we'll cancel the chopper. <laughs> yeah. That spin on the, the helicopter. Uh, wanting the helicopter is just unbelievably funny. I, I thought that that yeah. was such a great Yeah, straight parody. up. He's like, wait, why do I want the helicopter? And Dave Foley is straight up like, I've just always wanted to ride one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we crescendo at that point to a, a North by Northwest uh, climax where um, yes. uh, Foley right. uses the wax paper and tea bag. Uh, that just <laughs> just utterly baffles uh, um, the uh, Comfior yeah. and Jennifer Tilly is able to push him off the Statue of Liberty, which is framed and composed as if it's very high up. And you have this <laughs> moment where he he's kind of uh, about to fall and, and Nelson tries to save him. But the, the coat that Comfior is wearing rips and he falls not to his death, but to his uh, to, to, to the pain of falling on his keys, is, which I think is what he says. He's like, ah, I landed on my keys. <laughs> which is a dumb, very low-hanging fruit joke. Um, At this point, it's great. it, it kind of deserves yeah. it. It's like, like yeah. it earns that joke, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, it, it well, then ends with a, with a straight-up Kids in the Hall um, lift uh, where they do, where, you know, the Citizen Kane psycho gag where a character is trying to think of something that's quite obvious and the person keeps telling what the what he's trying to think of and he keeps going no something else and here it's with the word epiphany and and we kind of you know end out, end on on this moment of uh, initially you know Dave Foley saying that uh, i guess he's going to he's going to go you know on with his own life and then Jennifer Tilly's like or i could just like you know we could just be together and he's like oh okay and yeah let's do that and they embrace straight up goes straight up I, I, I guess you'll be taking your 1 million dollar reward and leaving yeah. me forever and he goes oh okay and then he <laughs> just plans that that's what he's going to do and then she comes back and she's like you don't have to do what do i just yeah. said like i was very clearly leaning into you having the romantic moment where you say no i want to settle down with you and your dad yeah. and and then he yeah. does do that and she goes well i don't want that let's go to your fucking shallow cleveland life i don't want to <laughs> live with my dad or do the banking stuff anymore like screw yeah. all of that i love how yeah limited. like very yeah, funny that it, even to the end it's subverting the big romantic ending and the last shot is her fainting and him having to drag her body out of frame yeah yes, that's like onto the, their the, new the, life the, <laughs> during yeah. the usual sort of like crane pull out kiss moment and it's just him just dragging her body away i love how they take a good one or two minutes after he leaves her initially to to kind of sink you into the feeling that he might not actually come back, which is was very yeah. funny too. They really uh, commit to that bit, but yeah, this this yeah. is a unbelievably funny movie. This has become now one of my like favorite comedies. I'm I'm definitely gonna go back to this and and show people because it's just it's unreal how consistently funny it is. Every gag I, made me laugh. Yeah, and every genre parody. Like I couldn't believe yeah, it's that really good when they were doing the Hitchcock one, they are doing like a deep cut Hitchcock reference as well because it's not just North by Northwest; it's also Saboteur, yeah, which is yeah. the like that, that movie literally ends with the guy hanging off the Statue of Liberty with the exact same shot, but it's like this mini golf version of it. So the wood just breaks and he falls like five feet, and he goes, "Ow, I landed on my keys," <laughs> and like that's that's like the big dramatic ending to the film. But yeah, this was I thought really. Fan, fantastic and pivoting, I think, towards um, 
the reductive rating round, which for you, Peters, we, where we remove all the words and all the nuance and reduce the movie between a number between uh, one and five. But it's also kind of become final statements or final lines if there's mm-hmm. any short gags that we, you wanted to throw in there at the very end. For for me, this was a, a very, very solid to maybe even a high four. Yeah. It, it, was, it was exactly what you'd expect from hearing that a Curb Your Enthusiasm director linked up with the kids in the hall and Simpsons writers to do an homage to on-the-run thrillers. But I was just like blown away at how really well executed the actual 90s action thriller elements uh, to it were. Like there are these, you know, really fantastic uh, like crane shots and Dutch angles and like sweaty close-ups, intense push-ins at the right moment that actually work as like film critique as well. Like getting you to think about the way that you watch those films in the self-reflexive way Peter mentioned in the opening. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also come off completely lovingly. Like they totally buy into, you know, the cop walking through the neon club or the slow-mo John Woo gunfight or the suspense escape artist stuff or I mean even the dramatic crane shot when he uh, is initially running away from the murder and he hurls the knife off the bridge and he hurls it just onto a police boat where the police are just like, wait, what is this bloody knife that just landed in here? And there's actually a reverse crane shot in the stormy rainy night as the killer holds up a rat in the forest just screaming protein, which is <laughs> a great wild. moment. So yeah, like Combs got it, so many great moments in this film. I, I also love when he wants a passport uh, and Ken Daly gets him an Iraqi passport and he's just like, Iraq? <laughs> It's like, like I wanted yeah. this. They didn't have any. <laughs> yeah, so so it's just like imagine all of these great genre movies that you already love and buy into, but if like you know the person who was going through them was this very feeble Jerry Lewis s goofball and Foley is spectacular at the yeah. shtick and the so, gags. That so he's I don't know if in your research you you learned this. There was a really great reunion event during the pandemic uh, that Foley. Um, and the writers put together, and uh, there was a lot of interesting chestnuts that came out of that. Jim Carrey was supposed to be in this, and this was supposed to be a much really? bigger movie. It was, it was going to wow. be like a 50 or $60 million movie with Jim Carrey. More at, people would know this movie if that yeah, happened. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and then Carrey pulled out to do what else, I guess, probably Liar Liar or something, whatever mm. else was happening in 1997. And... Um, and so it didn't happen, and then fully stepped into the lead. But then the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> lost about forty million dollars of budget. But and then all, and also a lot of attention from the studio that was financing it. And it was it's a classic case of there was a regime change. Um, the person in charge no longer was not interested in supporting the films that they had nothing to do with. Mm. And uh, apocryphally, I had heard that the film premiered on Air Canada, like that the first time anyone wow. could see it, and see the film. So this is basically a direct-to-video film. Almost. Yeah, I, I, I was. It was confirmed by Dave Foley that that is not true. Uh, okay. The, the, the film did play like an indie film, a couple indie comedy film festivals in the '90s, uh, but it did not have a theatrical release. Um, though there is a great 35 millimeter print of the film at the University of Toronto's archives. Um, I've shown Ooh. it a few times uh, in New York and once in Toronto a few years ago. <clears throat> um, okay. But well, it I is, will be uh, at that whenever that plays. Yeah, I'd love to play it again. Like it just it it it. I, I showed it as part of a '90s um, movie marathon where it was a surprise a secret movie marathon, so you didn't know what movies played, and it just absolutely slayed. I don't think I think maybe five people in the room had seen the film before, and it was. It was definitely the MVP of the marathon. Like it was, it play it it plays so so well. 
Yeah, that's killer. I I, I gotta say, I, I'm a I am a fan of uh, Jim Carrey. I know he can be a little over the top sometimes. I guess that's his whole shtick. But I I do like that Dave Foley ended up in this leading role because he has more of a grounded element to him, and it works yeah. really well with the character and just the type of parody that they're doing. Um, no, for sure. I think yeah. it actually helps. I think I think yeah. it's to its benefit that it was Foley. I absolutely agree. I think it'd be a very different movie. Yeah, for sure, a hundred percent. Um, Hell yeah. yeah, I'm going to give it a, a four as well, probably a strong four. I mean, I, I thought this was just so funny. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Um, I loved Foley's uh, performance. I mean, everyone was really great in this. But yeah, the, the genre bending of like pulling off a John Woo sequence and, uh, you know, referencing Hitchcock. I just thought that that was great. It's but, a wonderful life. Like yeah. it, it, the, I was constantly surprised that every time I was like, okay, this is where it has to swing into the obligatory, like derivative drama plot yeah. stuff that it has to do. But instead it's like, no, 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 it, this is just more genre parody. And it's, it's every time it sidestepped and derailed itself into another ridiculous segue and really entertaining ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and two more gags I just wanted to bring up cause I, I love them so much was, uh, when the cops initially get to the motel and we discover that the assassin is literally on the other in the other room attached to, to Nelson's um, he gets out because he still thinks he's in trouble and on the run and he puts like a towel over his head and then puts on a funny voice like this or something and just tries <laughs> to you know get out when no one is actually after him and so the, just the funny voice and him in the suit with the towel over his head they're calling him a woman again I did that gag was hilarious i just thought there were so many good layers and then another one with uh great layers is uh we were talking about when um the assassin is dressed as the doctor and he's about to go up to nelson and stab him um but nelson sees the cops so it kind of becomes this like train of events where uh the assassin's trying to kill nelson nelson sees the cops so nelson then starts to struggle with this guy with a magazine that's sitting down yeah he's trying and to when, hide his face behind a newspaper yeah and when the and cops, they literally just walk by two guys fighting like it's drawing more attention to him obviously yeah and they're they're like shrugness to it they just kind of like what are these fucking weirdos doing and then they just start talking to the assassin doctor um i, I just i loved those those two gags and yeah I, just, I think this is one of the funniest things that i've seen so uh highly recommend four out of five absolutely for you peter Oh, I'm going to give it a five because I'm always feeling generous. But I just nice. think this is, yeah. I, I just think it's flat out one of the funniest comedies of the 90s, like pound for pound, put it against any major studio comedy of that decade. And I mm. think you'd be hard pressed to find something as funny. I think it's in the same league as something like The Jerk. Like, I think I think this, yeah. is a, this should be considered a full on comedy classic. And it's it's something that in my my apartment like i am frequently throwing it on it is actually on youtube for free in pretty low resolution and dave foley is the top comment saying i'm really glad that people like this movie <laughs> oh that's <laughs> awesome that's adorable that's adorable yeah it kind of reminded yeah, me of so, like leslie nielsen uh movies every once in a while just in the sense of how the parody <clears throat> totally. would go yeah it, it has a bit of naked gun this to it but i actually yeah. think what I'm impressed by is that it has that rare thing in a spoof film where you get to a point where you go, I actually care about the characters. Yeah, I, that's, like, that's I, the, a good These point. are characters that I actually am invested in them surviving this scenario and them yeah. getting together. Like they are, they are genuinely an endearing couple. Um, and the yeah. trajectory of the film, despite it being so silly, uh, is really great. Yeah. yeah, Tilly and totally Foley agree. are both uh, spectacular. And before we wrap up, there was one line we didn't hit that I just wanted to bring up. And because <laughs> Comfior, he has so many of them, you you can't bring them all up. But 
I might be a cold-blooded killer, but I would never marry just to further my own career. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which was spectacular, spectacular moment. But I think that that's going to wrap it up here for The Wrong Guy. Please do check it out and find it, even if it's just checking out on YouTube. Dave Foley appreciates it. Um, Go check it out. We are going to be right back, and we are going to be talking about Mute Witness. Stick around. Stabbing two nurses and a custodian to death. Strobecker is extremely dangerous, and unpredictable. It's not over yet. All right, we are back and we are talking Mute Witness, the 1995 uh, uh, German horror thriller written and directed. Is it German? I actually don't like the the production company. German money. German money. money. So, yeah, I guess technically German. That's sorry. That's just what it said here. And I was like, actually, I don't know if that's true. It takes place in Russia. (laughs) It stars a bunch of Americans. It was shot in Russia, stars a bunch of Americans. Believe Anthony Waller is an American. Um, Yes. But yes, made in Europe. Uh, okay. Witness. Yeah. So this was this was written, directed, and produced by Anthony Waller, and I believe in a, a debut feature situation here. And all I know about this guy is that he came out the gate with this, which is a genuinely pretty remarkable piece of like suspense craftsmanship that I would yeah. put up there with like the level of excitement that was generated around you know Shyamalan around this time, and then his follow up was. The much hated American Werewolf in London sequel, American Werewolf in Paris. Like, so he immediately face planted two years later, which was co-written, by the way, by Tim Burns and Tom Stern of uh, Freaked fame, which I'm sure Peter knows all about. Yeah, I spoke with them about this. They they have nothing to do with the version of American Werewolf in Paris that was uh, uh, eventually made. They were so Tom Stern was supposed to direct it. Uh, he was actually hired to direct American Werewolf. See, that makes more sense to me because you just showed Freak on 35mm recently and I saw it for the first Mm. time at that screening. But like that has like this very vulgar, anarchic, like punk rock youth body horror thing. And I'm like, that makes sense. That tone makes sense to me for like a follow-up to American Werewolf. So they they wrote it and um, there were, this is maybe a theme on the podcast, there was a regime change and uh, (laughs) Freak was such an under, well, it affected Freak because Freak did like not get released for like two years like it was kind of shelved and um because freaked was like considered this disaster or this like thing that wasn't going to make any money for the studio they they basically said listen we're keeping the script you guys are off the project and they put to the demolition man director on the project and there was like a a cursory meeting um but it was very clear that listen we're moving ahead with our own own stuff and it was just because Mm. of wga Guild rules that their names had to stay on it because they were the first writers on the project. Um, okay. So for, first and last writers, but but Tom Stern, in particular, uh, no, uh, Tim Burns in particular, told me that he was invited to the. No, actually, Tom Stern did tell me this. He called me about this. They were invited to the premiere of the movie after not hearing about it for like a year. Like you know, <laughs> they basically were off the project. The movie was getting made. And uh, 
he said it's never it's probably one of the most humiliating nights of his life having to sit in that oh, audience no. watch watching the movie going like not recognizing it at all. Yeah. Like, like it's just like this is not what I wrote, but his name is there, and like he's, <laughs> it said it was within five minutes. Once like the extreme parachuting stuff like shows up, he was just like, "What the heck is this? What is going on? This is yeah." So yeah, I, I just want to say it on the record that they anything they ab- disavow. They disavow <laughs> that movie. They don't have anything. You don't like about that movie, they will claim no responsibility well, for it. Well, that's even more bizarre because you have three credits on that film. You have those two and you have this guy, Anthony Waller. And if you look at all of the previous films before that film that those three worked on, you're something crazy had to have happened there because because moving to Mew Witness, for example, which is the film that I assume got him enough attention that got yeah, him that game. Deservedly like, so, too. Yeah, like, this is great. Oh, like, yeah, this great. is great. Like, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the, like, sort of, like, basic um, uh, premise uh, is about this uh, mute makeup artist working on a slasher film in Moscow named Billy, played by Marina Zadina. And uh, basically sort of like blowout style movie within a movie Halloween slasher opening with POV steady cam scope images and the heavy breathing and fantastic over the the top like sound design and everything like that. We get into, you know, the actual set life and studio life working with her. And then one night while she's working on this film, which is directed by her sister's boyfriend, Andy, who's played by Evan Richards from uh, society. Uh, (laughs) She finds herself uh, trapped in the studio and, um, in order to try and get out, she finds a couple of other people who happen to be working on a film after hours and finds out that those people are actually working on a snuff film. And she witnesses a live murder and snuff film being made. And then it basically just turns into, you know, like this very lean meta thriller slash like gruesome cat and mouse suspense machine uh, piece operating like somewhere between again sort of like De Palma-esque you think a little bit about blow a little about body double but yeah. I also thought about like Larry Cohen's special effects oh, as yeah. well and um, obviously some of the self-reflexive stuff that you would get later in stuff like Wes Craven's um, Scream films and uh, New Nightmare and a little bit of that and it, it gets a little bit um, uh, silly at times in terms of you know how sleazy this premise actually is and how gnarly the violence and the actual suspense craftsmanship is but it, it's done in like a really I found uh, engaging and pretty impeccably you know stylized way yeah there's certainly a lot of slapstick at points uh, with in terms of how people get dispatched and die and the Evan Richards character is like pretty over the top and, and, and ridiculous um, yeah but no so much of that early suspense sequence is just like I, I had always heard of the film, and then I, I caught up with it earlier this year when going through the Midnight Madness uh, catalog uh, of films that had premiered at TIFF, and I was just like, "Damn, this is just a banger midnight film!" Like mm-hmm. this would yeah. have just played through the roof. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it is a film that's a bit difficult to summarize because it really is pure momentum like it is yeah. just yeah. a series i mean it's certainly somewhat similar i guess to the wrong guy the wrong guy is a series of gags this is a series of gags in the other sense of the definition like it's just <laughs> yeah. a series of sense set pieces some indebted to other movies some i think are wildly original um mm-hmm. and uh it does a really great job too of kind of building false climaxes not in a in a, in yep. a frustrating way but in a way where you're like okay this has got to be the end of the movie now and then it's like no 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 they're introducing a whole new act now now that she's actually <laughs> made it out of the studio and and now she's in an apartment complex and she, you think she's going to be okay but now the killers have shown up to kill them and it and it turns out that they're in with the 
the, the local police and, and, and they're all corrupt, uh, which I also think has a meta component as well because um, the uh, apparently this film was actually made by actually paying off the Russian mob uh, oh, wow. while they were, were shooting <laughs> and that their equipment Ironic. was also held by uh, customs as they went into the country and they had to apparently bribe customs officials to let them bring their equipment into the film. Like, it seems like a really... It seems like the how how crazy the filmmaking experience for the characters in the film is. There's a bit of that happening in the in the film filmmaking itself. Yeah, yeah, which which is really cool because this film does kind of have a little bit of like that low budget chintz at times. Like some of the, like the some of the music that they did for the film can mm-hmm. be very um you know sort of uh you know uh very minimal and and kind of exaggerated and kind of goofy at at, at times. But there you know there is like a really, really impressive just control of space, sound, and geography. Like the opening probably, I don't know, I got to say like 30 30 or 40 minutes or so. Yeah, like I was just like absolutely blown, like blown away. Because obviously you start with the opening, you know, movie within a movie stuff, which is very, um, you know, both... But both funny and very, you know, like there is a slapstick element. Like I do love the actress who the director, due to a language barrier, because the cast is all Russian, the director told her to like do it bigger, like do do this death scene bigger than she did it the previous time. And she literally spends like <laughs> two full on screen minutes, like gr- grunting and crying and like knocking the entire set over and covering herself in a blanket while she's just been like stabbed to death. And the opening credits like plays over her doing this as we get revealed that this is a movie being shot and we get this slow, very deliberate pan over like the cast and crew doing their work, like doing, you know, smoking and drinking and running the tech equipment um, and taking the supervising notes and everything like that. I love that it sets up though, like how we were saying it's the POV of the, of the killer. And then he goes about the the killing and they set up like some really nice and kind of scary shots, honestly, of like when she opens the mirror and you see him with the mask on and the bloody dress or waitress outfit and he gets close and closer and then he's kind of in this like hazy blue background that he comes out of as well um and it's legitimately pretty scary um and then like you said she starts doing all that over the top stuff but i like that at first when they're panning it looks as if the killer who's now just playing like he's just the actor uh, but you don't know that yet is just sitting down and enjoying like her giant <laughs> like yes sequence um and then yeah what I, I, happens, until someone lights his cigarette from like off camera and they're like yeah, yeah he's clearly chilling out on the side while they film the rest of the scene now <laughs> yeah exactly and and every time they introduce a new person at least initially there's this kind of like music jump as if someone's going to get killed or something violent is going to happen but it's always just a, a cigarette's lit some guy hands him a flask uh, and then eventually it's revealed that this is all just a crew. So I, I, I love that initial setup. And they do that a lot um, in, in the movie, more so um, when it comes to like characters lying to other characters and not saying exactly who they are and, and all of that. Mostly the undercover cop, but it, it happens yeah. a few times. Well, it, it also teaches you how to watch a lot about what you're going to watch because so yeah. many of it is very playfully using the movie magic. Like it's right. very much being like, you know, you would the same things that you totally buy into into the sequence that make you scared with this killer coming in to kill this girl. And then they show you obviously how, you know, kind of banal the actual process of doing that is with like the arguments they get into about, you know, it's 6 p.m. They got to close up, which by the way, any set stopped shooting at 6 p.m. I was like, okay, for sure. Um, (laughs) And then, um, you know, uh, they, but they, they throw in like, you know, it's, it's similar to, um, 
what we were just talking about, this quality of like, you know, kind of showing how ridiculous some of this is like with her overacting and like this, the silliness that we buy into. There's a part where they even play the film that they've shot to like the cops and the cops just start like laughing yeah, at it and stuff like that. To show how silly it is and they're trying to paint it as like, no, this is the snuff film that we made. Look, it's clearly dumb. Yeah, but but then still buying into it anyway because of how good this like actual craft is, like the actual camera moves and the POV yeah. tracking shots and like the voyeuristic uh, elements of it. And even just like, you know, the high angle like spying imagery and the moody nighttime blues that are coming in from th the windows and everything like that. Like it's just, you know, she finds herself basically in the kind of cheap movie that she would be making. And, you know, it is an incredibly thrilling experience to watch her because like the, the, the opening, like again, after that opening sequence where we get an idea of how the studio works and who's shooting what and who's involved in this production, it does just become like almost for the first half, like this, just this one night chase sequence. Yeah. And, and it is like silent, spectacular. Like dialogue, dialogue was, we, I guess we've, we, I don't think we've mentioned too that, do, have we mentioned that Billy is mute herself? Like she yes, I mentioned it just briefly, but yeah, yeah, like the movie very much uses that as a, as a, a tool to, you know, uh, keep upping the tension. Yeah. She can't call for help. And there's there's some really cool uses of it. One in particular that I remember is um when she's she, she's seen the the death scene which we'll we'll get to. Um but she's hiding behind like a bunch of trash bags and then notices the head in the trash bag that's kind of clear and transparent when the light shines on it and she lets out a what would be a scream like her mouth does the shape and her face contorts and all of that. Um, but instead, because she's mute, they have this like score that kind of does it for her a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, it was one of my favorite moments of just like just kind of her expressing herself. Uh, and we, we still hear this kind of off sound, but it's not really coming from her. It's just a mixture of her reality and the movie that we're watching. And I, I thought that that was a, a great moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very playful use of the sort of visual oral contradiction, which they actually yeah. do a couple times, because my other favorite example of that is the scene where she just walks in on the actual set, which, by the way, mm -hmm. she thinks they're just shooting like a porno. Like there's an right. incredible wide of her, you know, like sneaking in, walking up nonchalantly, thinking that she's about to ask these this other crew for help to be like, Hey, could you like unlock the door so I can get out of here? Cause the rest of the crew left me behind and I got stuck inside and she's just slowly walking up, not realizing that she's walking up to, you know, these, these mafia director, cameraman slash, uh, you know, like a performer as you know, she's watching this porn being shot and then the sex starts to get very rough and very violent and you know, she gets tied up and then she, the actress is very gruesomely stabbed to death and the, the sheer terror in her eyes while she looks at Billy being, you know, while she's being stabbed to death and the blood going everywhere. And yeah, she obviously the first uh, three zoom effect that they have a yes. couple times. Yeah, yes. it's really cool Be because they because they lock eyes with being like, you know, that this idea of like experiencing real terror and panic and knowing that you're about to die yeah. and being able to kind of trust that primal you know, that primal experience that your body and face are making. It actually comes up multiple times in the film. Yeah, she's that like, someone I else saw makes her. it. This was real. Like this was true terror. This this could not be yeah. fake. And 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 Billy is is someone who makes horror movies. Like she's a special effects artist. She knows the difference right. between reality and 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 then and then she is you know, a gaslit in a subsequent scene where um, 
you know, the cops do show up and they and, and it does seem like she's going to get away and that the, the killers are going to be found guilty. But then the killers explain that, no, they were just shooting a, an, an indie horror movie. And the worst thing that they did was just that they were using the set after hours and um, that there's no crime here. And Billy just mis- mistook special effects. And she's trying to explain. No, there's I know. A difference. Special, I know the difference. I know yeah. the difference. <laughs> Also, like it's there. It's my props that they're using. Like I, I know that that's not what was what I was seeing. That's, yeah, you know, yeah. Which leads to this like incredibly shocking moment that I, I wasn't yeah. exactly sure what was going to happen from there, and and I love the turn that they take it, um, where the one Russian guy who has killed the the actress that we saw earlier, um, starts to just take a knife to Andy, the director, and just brutally stab him, and the blood is going everywhere, and. You know, it's in front of the cops. It's in front of everybody else. This is when they're trying to get away. So you're just like, what could possibly be the reason that this is the timing that he chose? And then yeah. they they reveal that he was using one of the fake prop knives and one of the like blood squirter pumps packages yeah. that they have. Yeah, her specific tool that she taught him how to use in the opening scene yeah. as well, because he yes. forgot to do it in the actual scene that they were shooting earlier. He's like, and she has to go, yeah, you stick the blood bag under your armpit and you squeeze it when you stab. Like, what's so hard about that? And so now you get to see him actually do that. But yeah, you are right. Like, it's so effective. Like, you instantly just think oh, those guys have been cornered and they're just stabbing the director to death which right is, now. Like, is, this is this is balls to the wall. <laughs> yeah, and which is the whole point of the scene itself, too, because he's trying to convince the cops that it could look real. So yeah, it, the yeah. fact that it tricks you as an audience member initially is, is so effective when it comes to you believing that he would convince the cops in this scenario that it's yeah because like, no. it seems it's it seems like such a like you, you you'd be like how like no she's got them dead to rights like yes. this is this is good but then by tricking the audience you realize how susceptible the police would be in that situation and when you compose yeah. you know when you factor in the fact that she is a woman with a disability like she's only a further disenfranchised person. So, right. Uh, and like, they show that throughout the film, like a lot of the time when she's trying, even initially when she's trying to make the call to Andy, when she's just trapped and not thinking that she's on the run from killers, um, a, a more basic problem to have. Uh, he can't really communicate with her because he can't hear the tapping that she's doing. And I don't even know if he'd understand it, to be honest, if if uh, he did hear it. But he's cooking and jamming to music so he doesn't hear her. And so he doesn't get she doesn't get the initial help that she's looking for. Um, and that happens throughout, like at a certain point, she's trying to uh, call the police and, and the woman that's on the other line doesn't speak English. So she has to transfer her to somebody else. And there's just not enough time for that. Um, it really does show that she's at a, a disadvantage and that her surrounding environment isn't very um, good to her. Yeah, well, and it's, it's so it's very baked into the premise, this use of the the, you know, the visual versus the sonic quality, as we were talking about, like in yeah. the bit when she sees the stabbing and you were talking about how she screams and the score takes place. The one that I was referring to is the one where uh, the, the woman is being stabbed and murdered to death on camera. And uh, we get a shot of Billy's face, like obviously mm. screaming in terror, but she can't make the noise. And instead we hear the screams um, sort of dubbed onto her yeah. of the woman actually being killed. So they kind of become, you know, blended together in that moment, which then turns into this like incredibly visually elaborate chase sequence with like these 
wide angle lens, shallow focus, like low light hallway imagery that make, you know, great use of door frames and background and foreground information mm-hmm. and the blocking. And, you know, like even has this like nice little almost like Halloween esque knockoff score. But I love how much of it is her like peering and slinking around and trying not to make noise because they actually have to tell, you know, they I think there's a sort of slight conversation in the beginning where she explains that she can't talk. Yes, but she can hear and she right. she is very she's very like apt at that. And like the girl has to apologize and be like, you know, I forgot, you know, like you I don't need to dumb this situation down for you. You can hear. And so she takes such like the filmmaking takes such great use of like, for example, you know, moments where she's trying not to make noise in the hallway. She's just barely making it around into cover as the snuff filmmaker is chasing her around the actual like grimy rundown studio set. And previously he was the guy who was kind of nice to her on set. But like the, the, the image where like he comes like barreling around the edge of a frame just in time (laughs) for her to like hide behind, you know, like a, some sort of stand or some sort of like curtain or something like that. Or like the, God, the low angle shot of her hiding in the elevator shaft, like oh, looking at yeah. his feet or the high or that, angle or, one or of when her she hiding on the through that hallway and jumps like off the balcony into the garbage, like is such a yes. like, great oh, yeah, stunt those. where you're just like, oh, shit. Oh, like, like <laughs> you know, it just just it's just great genre pulp, you know, pure plot filmmaking. Uh, it's, yep. it's incredibly crafted and you totally understand this is a movie that you know debuts at a film festival and people like give this guy the sequel to American Werewolf in London. Like <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly, of course, give this guy whatever he wants, and that's why it's just such a tragedy that that movie was <laughs> such a fiasco. That I don't know how much of it was were his instincts not paying off. Was it how much of it was the studio just having too much oversight? You know, too much of yeah. insistence on. We got to use CGI because Jurassic Park, everybody loves that. Like, we got to mm-hmm. have CGI in our movie. Yeah, it's he just. Has, I mean, he has chops. Like all the all yeah. the, all the all the prosthetic effect, you know, gags, the corpses, everything looks so great in this film. And um, even in this yeah. like climactic, well, not you know, climax of the film, but this kind of climactic moment of the chase. Um, mm-hmm. It has this like first she gets into the studio itself, like the set, and then all the lights are coming on because they're turning them on to see if they can find anybody. And so, yeah, for, that high angle shot of her running through like the webbing of the set, yeah, like, like using the deceptive use of like the props in the set dressing. Like I thought of uh, Scream 3 when Nev Campbell is running through the fake version definitely. of like her childhood home mm-hmm. or something like yeah. that. And they yeah. also do. Um, I love that spotlight moment that happens too, right before yes. she sees the uh, the Russian killer, um, because earlier on we get this kind of like foreshadowing of it where he, he explains to her that a, a dead body should be whiter um, and <laughs> as he's doing that she's kind of blinded by the spotlights that he's surrounded by and so it's just mm-hmm. it's a cool little connection um, and then this part before she gets into the uh, dumpster uh, of film reels I, I think is awesome which like, is a great visual touch in general <laughs> oh yeah definitely um, they do this and I, I can never remember what the technique is called, but it's like a certain type of zoom in, zoom out uh, effect. The, the you're, you're talking to the dolly zoom while she's running down the hallway. Yeah. And they do that so many times. They keep cutting and every single time it has that zoom and it kind of creates this like tension as if he's getting closer and closer. Yeah, it's, the, to her. it's the it's the it's the Hitchcock shot or the Jaws shot or the yes. dolly zoom. 
Yes, yeah. that, that's yeah. exactly it's, it. And yeah. they, I think he does it like four or five times before she's pushed over into the into the dumpster. And it's just it's it's just a great little crescendo of effects and and filmmaking until that point. It's it's, it's all awesome. and, and it's kind of all crescendos. Like this movie just yeah. keeps. Uh, and I, I I even find the cutaway stuff like works pretty well. Like the there's the all those cooking gags with Evan. Evan Richards, <laughs> yeah, or like, the neighbors that are annoyed by all the noise. Well, how how much it builds and how much it comes back to the things that it builds was yeah. the thing that impressed me the most. Like they introduce at one point like a subterranean bricked layer, almost out of like an Italian horror film yeah. for a little bit, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. where it it has like this almost like ominous descent um, quality, and then it's revealed that they threw the body into that fireplace and like the the skulls we later see the skulls like charring in there as they kill the janitor who who finds it so and then that's our explanation for how they hid the body that the cops couldn't find um and then we get into these asides where like alec guinness is in this well that <laughs> yeah, like, we, we have we, we haven't mentioned that yeah alec guinness is in it shot 10 years before the movie was filmed uh apparent, what? What? apparently the director <laughs> ran into alec guinness and um was like had he had already written a draft of Mute Witness uh, this okay. was back in 1985, and I think he were in Ham- he was in Hamburg. He met Alec Guinness, I think at a hotel. It was just totally by chance, and he said he basically pitched the movie. He said it would be a small walk on roll. Would you do it? And Alec said he was interested, but and he would do it for free. He, w- he wouldn't wow. take. He was like, yeah, I'll just do it for free. But he said, uh, I'm fully booked right now. I don't know when I could do it. And also, Anthony hadn't even like gotten the money to make this movie yet. So he said, "If you're, could we do it tomorrow morning? We'll just go to a parking lot and shoot it in there. <laughs> and so it was That's that crazy. those shots. And apparently it was only one shot. And I, you see Alec Guinness three or four times. But every time else you see it is him either reversing the film to just extend it a little longer. Um, but it was just him working with like this minute or so of footage that he had of Alec Guinness. That's crazy, because I didn't even notice. Yeah, like, no, it's like, seamless. It, it is seamless. seamless. He's kind of like silhouetted and stuff, and I, I didn't realize that. Um, so it could have just been like a, a double if you see other people it, it, within the scene, because I think the only time you see Guinness is when he's got like the, the kind of zoom in close up and he's delivering his very ominous uh, dialogue. Yeah, he gets to play this wealthy sicko financier who backs the snuff ops or, uh, operation and is in charge of this sort of exploitation of precarious female immigrants, tricking them into making porn for money and then murdering them on camera. But when he rolls up, he just rolls up in like this like vintage car. He's completely like silhouetted until he leans in and he gets to do like what a great voice, obviously. But he's like, did it go smoothly? <laughs> <laughs> And he leans forward into the light just in time for them to be like, wow, this guy's actually pretty, you know, he's pretty intense. We should uh, we should, uh, you know, maybe uh, get rid of this girl who happened to be a witness to, you know, everything that we just did, even though the cops don't believe her or anything. Like, it's just kind of a loose end that we don't want to deal with, which then turns into its own whole section of the film of like literally just trying to kill this this uh, makeup artist and, you know, clear, clear out any issues that they might have with their, um, you know, with their operations moving forward. And it, and that turns into like an extended like apartment set piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, feels like it also goes on for just as long as the chase pretty much. Yeah. And there's some real great like uh, Rube Goldberg machine uh, stuff that happens in this sequence in terms of people slipping and guns going off <laughs> in the wrong direction and shooting other people and. <laughs> A lot of fun. And this is where it also becomes a bit of like uh, like the, when this conspiracy kind of gets and this whole like trafficking ring gets 
uh, sort of exposed. There's like a, the undercover cop, which also I think is a great sequence because you're like, I don't trust him. They're like, this is this yeah. doesn't seem this seems like another ploy. This seems like another layer of deception. Um, and they do it and, about three times or something too. <laughs> they keep just yeah. pulling the rug out from under you. Um, yeah. At a certain point, I found it like the. Th- I think the third time, I was like, "Okay, I think he's an undercover <laughs> cop." But yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but it really does work throughout because you're already in so you have so many questions about what's going on, and you don't know any of these people, and Billy is completely unaware of them. So um, there is an uh, an obvious like distrust that comes along with that. Um, but yeah, the, by the yeah. third fake out, I, I felt like I knew what was happening with his character. But it, it's a uh, it's it's still very very good. I, I liked his his character well and again it, it works like such a such a machine through those set pieces like to to like totally just sweep you up in the stuff that you might know is kind of ridiculous anyway like you have yeah. her in in her apartment you know she's um you know there's great focus on you know like the the friend on the phone she's trying to talk to using this text-to-voice device that obviously makes it you know puts her once again at another disadvantage trying to tell her friends that she's in trouble or call the cops but then she's also looking at like you get brief sort of subjective moments where she's like looking at the detective's card or when she's in the bathtub and you get this you know the the things that she's witnessed are starting to make their way into her mind and we're getting these sharp you know flash cuts of the things which then turn into the water rolling onto her body and hitting her face and looking like blood drips and everything like that so again it's, it's like most of the the actress too for like yes one with shot. the bloody hands on the window and everything yeah. yeah so like very clearly you know she is traumatized partially by you know what she has seen and how real and how terrified that she was and the film just loves to build that suspense and terror to an unbearable quality and like the basic premise of how it you know formally is matching this character is that it keeps building that and it just never gives you the relief it's half the time it's a fake out half the time it just like never comes Mm -hmm. and even it even when it ends it still ends on like this moment of you know there's i guess there's a tiny bit of like we got away with something but there there is this quality that i feel like it just constantly builds and builds and builds and builds and then does not actually give you the relief which is like an an incredible way to sustain suspense for as long as this does like as they start barging in with like their feet and their bolt cutters at one point and you know just and yeah as as peter mentioned the rube goldberg quality of like just constant action and reaction like i love the bit when she tries to flash her neighbor like rear window style to get his attention (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was that's a great moment um, and I think that's why some of the the comedy in this and the slapstick ends up working because it's just constantly moving. So you're you're kind of always full of tension. So when there are some more, you know, I don't I don't know if you want to call them lighthearted, but comedic moments with Andy, for instance, um, I didn't mind them as much. I thought that they were almost like it, it truly was kind of relieving just because it's so it's so driven the, the entire time you're you're in suspense and tension. Uh, so I, I didn't find it to uh, undercut too many moments, luckily. No, I, I find it totally works for the ridiculousness of the situation that they're yeah, in and exactly. how all, none of these characters really know how to act like there's like she's obviously a very resourceful character. Yeah. Mm. And like the way the way that she, you know, uh, escapes the two Russians who are breaking into her apartment 
And, you know, she's like throwing knives at them and there's like full stunts of like diving through glass doors and she she ends up electrocuting one in the bathtub. I mean, it was, great- it, it, this was a movie that was intent, initially intended to be shot in Chicago and then the director moved to Russia when he was like, I probably can throw actors through things with a lot more ease. <laughs> <laughs> like it's one of the, I, 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 Grady, Grady, Grady Hendrix once said, if you want to find the future of accident cinema, you go to where life is the cheapest, which is kind of a disturbing <laughs> oh, sentiment, it. <laughs> but it's kind of true. Like you kind of like, you know, the, the, we, you know, I, I feel like you look to the places where there unfortunately maybe aren't as many safety protocols and and people are right. are, are kind of willing uh, or maybe naive enough or maybe impulsive enough to like throw themselves through windows and <laughs> do these sort of dangerous stunts. Um, and it definitely feels dangerous, like yeah. watching the things that they're doing and like her hiding behind the door as like the blades and the fists are coming right through it, like inches away from her face. And, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love you I know? love any gag like that. Like, I feel like um, uh, it's a uh, one of the reasons I also picked this is I got a slasher film at Midnight Madness this year. John Hyam sick, and it is full. Of I can't gag. wait. It's full of gags like that, where like a character is trying to oh, hold, man. trying to keep a door shut, and <laughs> instead of just having the door get like shut and the killer doesn't get through, like you've got the knife coming through, and maybe it's hitting <laughs> parts of the person as they're trying to keep the door closed. Like get, you know, it. Those are the those are the secret sauce that uh, a good slasher yeah. uh, contains. Yeah, I, I love how that just keeps escalating, too, in that moment where he's trying to get through the, the door. Like, he brings chain cutters for, for the actual <laughs> yeah. chain itself. And then you're like, okay, well, this guy's done. And then you just start hearing a drill being powered up. And at first I <laughs> thought it was a chainsaw, honestly. I'm like, holy shit. Uh, but yeah. then he just starts drilling through the, the hole. I, I did love all yeah. of those escalations. And, and, and you can hear it as she's trying to make the call. Like, again, yeah. it's there's yeah. so much, like, contradiction and chaos in the way that it's layered some of the sound design and, yeah, elements of that. Just awesome. And I love, too, how so many of the world that it builds keeps coming back like i love throughout this whole sequence there is a pissed off russian neighbor right below (laughs) them who's like what are they doing up there are they having sex like what is that like he he keeps like every time they make noise and like we cut to them like her falling and almost being stabbed billy's having a knife down below being like hey hey like what are you guys doing up there and eventually he makes his way all the way up just in time to see two mafia guys dressed as cops who have essentially been executed by her friends and is like, what have I just seen? Because, you know, at a certain point, she's found herself in like an escalating plot involving like stolen discs with valuable mob information and yeah. dirty cops Russian show up to execute porn. the snuff producers, <laughs> you know, to like cover it all up. And yeah, there's even like violent British, gags. Yeah. There's literally a rug pull where her friend just yanks on a rug that one of the Russian cops who's actually a mafia member is standing on and he falls and he shoots his partner, uh, through like his chin essentially and up the back of his head. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And that's one of my favorite gags in the sequence in in the scene, that whole, that whole series of events. And I like it. It turns into a, like another gag as well a little bit. And it's, and it's effective one because when the neighbor walks in and sees everything, um, obviously he kind of freaks out. And then after Andy's like, we should call the cops. Uh, we could explain <laughs> this whole scenario. And, and uh, Karen, the, the 
girlfriend is like, are you fucking insane? Like, how would we be able to explain this? And as she's saying it, it the camera does like a, a cut uh, uh, and shows the entire room and you just see like all the chaos, all of the rummage, all the all the bodies that are laying down bloodied and just got shot in the head. Um, it's it's a it's a good it's a great gag. Yeah. And it eventually climaxes back at the studio where Billy remembers seeing a disc actually knock over in the chaos when she witnessed the murder because mm-hmm. she was kind of trying to run away and she hit a table and, you know, a disc fell off from the table. And so she knows where it is. And, you know, then there's some elements here where, you know, the mob is chasing her. The cops are chasing her. You know, this detective, she's not sure if she can totally trust him and if there's any double crossing about to be done. You mm-hmm. get a lot of whiplash in the sequence, I find. Yeah. But it's still built so well, like formally, you still get pretty invested in it. And there's this fantastic moment moment too where Billy uh, uh, runs out into what is a trap set by the Reaper set by Alec Guinness and you know she, we get this big moment of a slow-mo of her shocked face as you know it's a, it's apparent that the detective has kind of lured her out and is actually maybe working with the Reaper is what you're supposed to think mm-hmm. and he pulls the gun and you I love that you get the shot too because I mean it makes great use of like scope screen space and blocking and framing and everything like that but that bit where she stunned has kind of realized what's happened and you just get out of focus in the background the detective bringing the gun down and you can see his arm moving in the background and then bam this massive you know her chest exploding with blood everywhere she gets shot the russians are satisfied they pull away Mm. and then it's once again revealed that it's movie magic baby she had (laughs) she was rigged with giant squibs the detective was in on it the whole time once again the gnarly death turns into this cute little resourceful you know sort of like character twist that they have to it and how believable it is uh, again too like karen looking at it is absolutely devastated that her sister is just being blown to smithereens in this moment oh yeah because she 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 convincingly makes like the shocked terrified face which is actually earlier when she gets when when she's in the pile of film reels right in the dumpster yeah and she's trying to signal that this guy isn't actually an innocent bystander trying to help me he's actually the killer oh i love their communication yeah her, her her friend realizes that by the expression she's making on her face and like how wide-eyed and she's looking at her like begging her to please stay and realize that something real and dangerous is happening here and yeah so she convincingly makes that face during this scene which convinces all the mobsters who have probably seen real death enough time to know what it looks like yeah and yeah like that's just a great moment and i love that they they kind of um they bring it back one more time too because they they show andy as like completely incompetent really as, as a, like a, a helper and director in a sense. Um, but at one point he has the trigger that would burst the, uh, the burst the chest and, and he's using it. I think they say a line, something like, uh, did we, did we take care of all the Russians or something like that? And then, yeah, they, they go, I don't know why the Reaper didn't take the disc off me. Like that feels weird that he just left. And like, that was it. Like that felt too easy is kind of what they're suggesting. Right. Yeah. Right. And then out of nowhere, um, before you even see Andy use it, uh, Billy's chest just bursts again and you get this big scream because everybody's scared and you think, oh, my God, like a sniper just took her out. And yeah. then Andy just apologizes. is like, that's that's my bad. I, I, I <laughs> fucked up. I pressed the button here. Yeah. Um, but, but it's still not over. It's still not over. Yes, yeah, it's still going. <laughs> They get, they're getting it, they're, you know, the, the, the undercover cop is now getting into the car with one of the corrupt security guards who's bound and gagged and, and they're about to drive away. But again, the look of terror on the guard's face is signaling Billy that like, wait, something's wrong. And, uh, and she's able to communicate that, 
uh, enough so that the cop can jump out of the car, which had a bomb planted on it, and it explodes. Yep, yep. And she gets, I guess, one moment of kind of relief where it's like, okay, my new cop friend is not dead. The other two (laughs) in the car are definitely dead. Uh, But I'm with my my friends, and I guess I'm okay, even though I'm going to be absolutely traumatized for the rest of my life. (laughs) Yeah. Don't make movies in Moscow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah like like the, that stuff is so self-reflexive and there's so much whiplash in how like who's double crossing and who is using movie magic and who's actually being like who's having their body like just absolutely ripped to shreds yeah. like you the way that it plays with all of that and the way that you've been set up to play literally since the opening of the film and the, the dangerous chase sequence that happens like I'm not even completely sure that it all adds up but there was just this quality where like the actual filmmaking mechanics of watching it were nothing short of being a total blast yeah. the entire time yeah. so I, I kind of just bought into it even though I was thinking about it after the fact and I was like do I really understand the cop character like yeah. the detective yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. It, it kind of moves <laughs> fast enough that you, you know, maybe the movie's full of sandwich moments where you're not really supposed to you, think you, about it in in the moment. Yeah, you but. definitely don't think about it watching it. I'll say you're yeah. just totally engrossed by the mechanics of how it's how it's working and how it's getting you, yeah. you know, to actually buy into so much. And it doesn't feel cheap. Like all of these fake outs, like it sounds like a lot of fake outs, but it doesn't feel like cynical fake outs. They they feel like they totally earned this. Every can you tell the difference between yeah. what's real and what's fabricated murder? And, yeah. you know, it's totally built into the premise of who the character is um, and all of the actual character experiences we've seen, too. Like it even has an emotional element when her friend can tell that she's in trouble. They have this connection and way of communicating that no one else does. So, like, it, it's very, very well built into the emotional character premise. Yeah. That, like, you know, character wise, I definitely bought into Karen and Billy as Two people that yeah. really know how to communicate are are loving towards one another and and care. So, yeah, the re- the rest Absolutely. are kind of like um, just built to like Andy seems to be built for your en- entertainment more so than anything. Uh, the the cop is kind of that like red herring, I guess, in a way. Um, and but the, but Billy and Karen, I I really did appreciate every single scene they have together, especially that one where it's the initial like believe me, something is wrong. Um, eye contact that they have when uh, the one Russian guy is like holding her down in the dumpster. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, uh, I, I did really like them. I just want to also give a a redaction or like I I got something wrong. Um, Waller is a British filmmaker. He he, he was born in Beirut, Uh, um, but he was born to British parents, English parents. And he grew up in, he grew up basically all over Europe. Like it sounds like he, you know, he was in Germany for a while working in German television. And I think that's kind of how this production uh, got started. And then oh. he was Amsterdam based for a while, which is where he produced uh, Werewolf in London. And then, you know, he did a bunch of DTV stuff after, you know, uh, I mean, sorry, Werewolf in Paris. He did a bunch of DTV stuff after, and he really hasn't kind of emerged from that well. And I, ha- and I'll, I'll admit, I haven't seen The Guilty or Nine Miles Down or any of like his his contemporary psychological thrillers. Um, yeah, me neither. And I know he's working on Bill Bill Pullman and uh, Devin Devin uh, Sawa or whatever in The Guilty. Uh, I might be interested in that. Yeah. <laughs> from 2000 but yeah this guy deserved better and i think that's the main uh the, both of these films i think that's the double feature both of these films i think deserved better and i'd be so curious you. how long he, they spent shooting this film 
like it, I mean, it sounds like it was such an insane production because it was, you know, they were, they were, uh, you know, they they had all these, cr- you know, corrupt officials that they were dealing with. They had the mob breathing down them, <laughs> their shoulder. They, there was apparently um, a diphtheria outbreak on set. Uh, oh God! Sub twenty three degree temperatures, uh, <laughs> wow. last minute casting changes. Like it just seems like a hell movie, and I wonder if it was like, was it that kind of hellish conditions that like a uh, you know g- gave Anthony the opportunity to rise to the challenge or you know to rise above it all uh, and maybe yeah because you don't know you would think it, he wouldn't be doing great. such complicated elaborate setups. No, uh, I know, under but like the, clearly like that. there was a stubbornness that like saw this movie through. It was also financially. Um, it was financed by himself. It was a pure independent. Yeah, film. produced by him too. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So I mean, I I bet they were just shooting for months. <laughs> like it feels like yeah. it feels like the first the first act of the movie might have been like a thirty day shoot. Just the first act. Like, <laughs> yeah. It just seems. Yeah, I mean, it, so I imagine intense. it would have to be just like the the way that it moves through the set, like the geography of it, the visual, like how visually elaborate the actual camera moves are and like the lensing that they're doing where they're really showing off like the surroundings with the wide angle imagery and stuff like that as well. So yeah, they established um, that like before the uh, initial chase sequence in the first 30 minutes, um, they really do establish every location, like every room in the studio that they're using this like old warehouse or building or whatever they're using before she starts yeah. running through everything. So you kind of feel like you have an idea of where she's going before she yeah. gets there, which is cool. And you, and you can kind of see the choices that she's making and why yeah. she's making some of them and how she's using weaponizing her surroundings and, and you know, the sound and what these characters can actually see of her. Like it actually is very subjective uh, point of view um, elements, even when it's showing you these shallow focus, like, you know, she's just on the edge of the frame peering around the corner, looking at this guy who might be, you know, who's searching for her at the other end of the hall and stuff like it. Again, just great sense of space and, and sound and, and geography pretty much throughout the entire film which really you know really grounds the you know uh really crazy silly sort of whiplash level uh plot elements that they start to develop about halfway through and and really lean into in the the uh big climax but if we're pivoting i think towards a reductive rating around here this was once again a very very solid uh four for me and i was very uh surprised uh by both of these films because a uh, mute witness i had i had heard of but i was surprised once again that i just hadn't heard more of it like it's just there's so many great style moments we can't even get them to them all but there's like binocular creep shot stuff there's a great <laughs> match cut from uh, a character uh stabbing the janitor to the meat that they're eating yeah. at dinner like the, 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 <laughs> oh, like yeah. the way that this moves it flows so well in the shooting and the cutting that i just couldn't help but be insanely impressed with this on just a suspense technique I mean, it's level. It's a film that clearly was living in a director's head for a decade. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if he shot, if that's as far back as when he shot Alleginness's cameo, like it was something yeah. that he was just, he was living with this movie and, uh, and then he finally raised the money and got, was afforded the opportunity to make it. And, uh, he just was able to just pour out his vision that had been percolating for 10 years. Yeah. 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 And I and I and I love the self-reflexive meta like, you know, this character knows the movie industry and knows how to make this stuff look real versus the real thing. Like the detective talking about when you watch he's at researches snuff films and he's talking about, you know, you can tell when you're watching the film that you're watching the real thing by the look on the expression when the person realizes that they're about to die. And yeah, then the close up on the eyes. And the, there's a bit of peeping Tom in that. Concept. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
And um, but it should be yeah, a classic. It should be a classic of the decade. It should. And yeah. and I do think Arrow might be putting together a, a Blu-ray if they haven't already. Like I think finally this thing <laughs> that would is be fantastic. Because um, I found hopefully. I could only find a, a DVD rip, and it still looked good actually. But I would love to see. Yeah. A Blu-ray, that'd be amazing. I've heard, because I've been looking for the 35, and I think I found it, and so I think a Blu-ray is coming. Um, oh, so incredible. That, that'll be exciting. Uh, incredible. Yeah, and, and I think it'll have a bit of a, um, a renaissance as a, as a result. I think so. Yeah, there should be talked about more in the 90s thriller canon the same way that um, the wrong guy should be talked about in the 90s comedy canon. <laughs> yeah, yes. very, very underseen. Yeah, very another, another thematic Please connection. Yeah, these two really <laughs> great. I, as I said at the start, like one is a terrific genre parody and the other one I think is a terrific genre pastiche. Like it's just, yes. they're, they're both incredibly indebted to films that came before them and they were both um, emulating the aesthetic and form and structure um, with with a really deft craft. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm also going to give it a four. I, th- I I loved all the um, the the meta stuff, kind of leaning into her job as a as a makeup artist, and spe- specifically, it seemed in horror. Um, I, I love the, just the idea of like, you know, what's real and what's fake and, and how they're constantly tricking people from their perspectives into uh, believing certain things are happening. Um, there's a lot of rug pulls in this that are, do have like a whiplash and effect, literal rug pulls. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. Which, I, which was just one of my favorite pull. gags. He had to have done that on purpose. Yeah, That's yeah so definitely. Definitely. Um, but yeah, I just, I, the, the suspense in this is unbelievable. It's, it's just, it's nonstop. It, it just keeps going. And I think that's also why I still enjoyed some of the comedic elements of it too, because it just, as soon as there's something that kind of relieves you, you're just right back into the suspense again. Um, and, uh, I, I loved the, the communication between Karen and Billy. I thought that that was really cool. I love that, that three zoom in on the eyes that the, that the, uh, that Anthony uh, does. I, I think it was very Every effective. time you have real primal terror versus the fake shit. You <laughs> yeah. know, he emphasizes it. He wants you to know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think this is solid. Everyone needs to go check this out. Um, I'm shocked that it's so underseen. Um, so yeah, four out of five for me. Yeah, for you, Peter. Uh, it'll be a four. It'll be a four for me. I'm right nice. with you on it. Um, this is just a really strong thriller. Um, you know, maybe there's one too many pulls by the end, uh, <laughs> and and there's some the the uh, the conspiracy stuff gets a little bit on the convoluted side, but yeah, uh, the you know the craft doesn't get much better in in, in the '90s when it comes to uh, a De Palma inspired thriller. So I I just love yeah I love this movie. Really glad that I could introduce you folks to it, and uh, hope more people get to see it, and hopefully we'll have a Blu-ray to watch of it soon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for and bringing that. And honestly, it, ex- expect it, expect it at Midnight Madness presents. Hopefully next season. Definitely want to do it. Incredible. Hell yeah, yeah. I'll be there for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Peter, for um, uh, bringing these films with you. I think that's going to wrap it up for The Wrong Guy from 1997 and Mute Witness uh, from 1995. Uh, usually, Peter, this is where uh, if you've got anything coming up that you would like to plug, we usually have you do that. And I know you're a busy guy. You've got I lots got of so stuff many things to plug. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Midnight Madness is coming up. Uh, Ten Nights yep. of Madness um, at the Toronto International Film Festival. Really excited about the lineup this year. It's very eclectic. I couldn't believe that you got John Hyams, Kevin Williamson slasher. Where did that come so from? Sick. I mean, just so out of nowhere. I, 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 uh, I, there are certain filmmakers that I put IMDb notifications on, and it actually this, this <laughs> popped on notif- this popped on IMDb last year, and I was like, 
okay, so I just kept emailing John, who I met uh, when I presented Universal Soldier 4 at Toronto After Dark uh, um, 10 years ago, or a little bit less. Regeneration or Day of Reckoning? Day of Reckoning. Um, Day of Reckoning. What a fantastic film. Yeah, no, I mean, it's an incredible movie. And so I've known John for a while. I actually uh, was very close to selecting Alone um, for our previous Midnight Madness. Uh, That film was... um, uh, he sent a really very, lean survival yeah. thing. Yeah, we covered it on the bonus transmission. It was solid. Yeah, it's solid. And he said, I saw a really early rough cut of it. So the thing that I, I mean, and in the end, I, I, I went with with other movies, but I do remember when I watched it, even in a rough state. I just don't think there's a better um, action director in the West than John Hyams. Just in terms of it like awesome, when we talk yeah. about when we talk about Waller's craft and Mute Witness, I think there's a similar canny ability that that Hyams has uh, that I think honestly eclipses his father's work like he is such an incredible craftsman in terms of geography in terms of how bodies react to violence um, and he brings <laughs> a lot of that to sick which is which is in the midnight section beyond midnight um, I have two films in uh, that had just premiered at the Fantasia Film Festival that I'd encourage people to look out for on the festival circuit and beyond one of them is uh, Mickey Reese's Country Gold, which is a Garth Brooks biopic of sorts, but a very surreal version of Garth Brooks. It's but a uh, named in this movie Troil Brooks rather than Garth, uh, but Troil is Garth's okay. real name. Um, and Troil Brooks, it's about Troil Brooks getting dinner with uh, country singer George Jones in 1994, the night before George is to be cryogenically frozen. Uh, none of which actually happened, but it's kind of like my dinner with Andre. <laughs> Uh, with country music um, and if you've seen oh, cool. a Mickey, Re- Mickey Reese film before he's a really prolific filmmaker in Oklahoma I think this is his 29th feature film and Damn. it is uh, it is uh, just as offbeat and, and warm and, and hilarious as his, as his films uh, I think are uh, and then I yeah he, he's the guy who did a climate of the hunter right? indeed he did climate of the hunter okay. yeah and and that was cool. that and Agnes were kind of his two attempts at horror movies but his sensibility has always purely been comedy and frankly both climate and agnes are really comedies first um (laughs) and um i uh and i but i think this is probably the most pure mickey film since his really terrific elvis movie alien um if you ever want to catch that if you're in the mood for it after the baz Luhrmann movie at 70 something (laughs) minutes on i think you can find it on the alamo and demand website and i don't believe it's geoblocked to canada but um yeah, it's cool. Really, it's really good. And then I, I produced a film in Florida called The Artifice Girl, directed by Franklin Rich. It's his debut feature. Uh, it won the Audience Award at Fantasia and is just a terrific hard science fiction film. I think it's, I like, I'm biased because I, I was involved with it as a producer, but it actually came to me half finished. He sent me the first act of the movie that he shot on his own during the pandemic for about $10,000. And I was so impressed with it that I helped him find the rest of the money, get Lance Henriksen in the cast. And, nice. Um, Whoa. It's a, it's a really terrific science fiction film that I would be, say is comparable to something like Ex Machina and Primer. And it really feels like the most auspicious science fiction debut I've seen since something like Primer. Like it's incredibly well written uh, with really awesome. terrific performances. And I'm really excited for Franklin's career. And so hopefully that will play Toronto soon. Um, but I believe awesome. uh, it'll have a U.S. premiere in, in the next uh, couple months. So for your U.S. Cool. listeners, look out for that one. 
Yeah, well, we'll keep our eyes on it, too. We're always looking for underrated genre stuff because we do have an end of the year list where we spend an hour and a half just doing honorable mentions of all of the (laughs) direct to video and small genre stuff that nobody talks about to try and get people's watch lists getting a little bigger. So we will definitely be keeping our eyes on um, those ones. And uh, for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where, uh, as Jamie alluded to, we're going to be doing a little bit of a cyberpunk uh, mode, but that uh, partially one because we're going to be doing Blade Runner. Uh, yeah. Just unfortunately, every so often, we just we have to hit the heavy hitter. We're five years into this show, and somehow <laughs> we haven't talked about Blade Runner yet. So we are going to be talking about Blade Runner, but it's set up because the week after we're going to be doing an episode on new rose hotel and decoder yeah with uh two special guests and i felt like talking about cyberpunk uh would have be a really good idea to prep us for new rose hotel and to prep us for decoder we're going to be pairing the blade runner episode with liquid sky which was uh released by uh, vinegar syndrome on blu-ray and uh is a wonderfully uh strange <laughs> uh low budget alternative for a kind of uh sci-fi punk kind of attitude film mm. and uh yeah, so that's going to be next week over on the Patreon, Blade Runner and Liquid Sky, uh, patreon.com slash Podcast if you're interested in that episode. And then in two weeks' time, once again, with uh, two special guests joining us, we're going to be talking about New Rose Hotel and Decoder. So look forward to that. Yeah. But that being said, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening, and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy. <laughs>